Well, hey, good morning, church. How are we doing? Good? Why don't you do me a favor? I think we need to wake up a little bit at the 9 a.m. Can you turn to someone next to you and just say, good morning? It's good to see you. We're trying to teach our son right now. He turns four in a few weeks that when we walk in the doors of church, we're like, hey, when we go to church, we say hi to everyone. And I hope that that would be true of us as a church, right? That here at Harvest, we lift up the name of Jesus in worship. We've done that so far. And what a great time of worship. Uh, We hold high the authority of God's word. We're about to do that. And we love well those around us. And so I would just encourage you, even after service today, man, what a gift it is to fellowship with uh, the body of Christ. Amen. Well, it's good to be here. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Psalm 19. Today is the last week of the foundation portion of our Christian Worldview series. Next week, we're going to begin to look at practical areas, things that are currently put into question by our world, things that are uh, debated and and, and really um, at the forefront of the predominant worldview of our culture today, things like sex and money and work and politics and authority. And um, I'll be honest, I think it's going to get heavy. I think uh, there might be some tense moments, some difficult things to hear, but man, I just think it's going to be so fruitful and and really impactful for our lives as we continue to form this Christian worldview. And our hope is that as we dive into these practical areas, that we would view them through the lens of the foundation that we've been laying the past month. And with that in mind, uh, you know, I think today's message might be the most important message of this whole series. I'm not just saying it because I'm preaching it. Might be a little biased, but because today we are laying the foundation of scripture for a Christian worldview. The Bible, God's word, this book that we've laid a foundation so far of God, a view of God and humanity and sin and salvation. And we've done all of that by what? Opening our Bibles and seeing what it says. And so we've done all that by looking to scripture. And as we turn to the practical side of the Christian worldview, uh, we're going to do the same thing. We're going to open our Bibles and see what scripture speaks into the practical areas of our lives. That's what we do every week, right? We open this book. We let it say what it says and mean what it means. We hold high the authority of this book. And so if you haven't already, I'd encourage you to get to Psalm 19. We'll be there in a moment. And so we must lay a foundation of scripture in order for the way we view the world to be Christian. Um, But before we do that, here's just a few things that today's message isn't going to be. And I want to disarm this because it's easy for us to uh, have some presuppositions and things we naturally think as we have a message about the Bible. The first thing that today's message is not going to be is that the goal isn't that it would just result in obligation, that you walk away being like, I need to read my Bible more. And you go to small group this week and it's like, hey, you know, what's going on in your life? Oh, I need to read the Bible and pray more. Classic, right? That's that's not the goal of this message. The goal is not that you'd have an obligation to read the Bible. The second thing this message is not going to be is a message that just results in information. I'm not going to spend half an hour uh, putting, you know, charts and saying big words that you would be convinced that this is the Bible or that I'm smart. That's, That's not the goal. The goal is not information. And the third thing is that the goal of this message is not simple affirmation that you would just nod your head along with everything that's said and be like, yeah, I totally agree with everything that's said about the Bible. Cool, the Bible's awesome. Thumbs up. Let's go to lunch and watch the game and not think about it again. That's, that's not the goal. The goal of today's time is that it would result in transformation, that as we open God's word and are confronted of the truth of what it claims to be, that it would transform us and our lives and our view of the Bible. So why is that the goal? 
That's the goal because, um, again, you probably already sitting there in your mind know as we go to a message about the Bible, I need to read God's word more. And that's probably true. And that's awesome. But we're not just going to live there. And honestly, you already probably believe that uh, scripture is God's word. If you're in the room today, if you're a follower of Jesus, you likely believe that this is God's word. It is an authority. Um, but it's really interesting, not even just Christians. There was a study uh, done by the American Bible Society and Barna Group, and they found that 54% of Americans said that the Bible contains everything a person needs to live a meaningful life. And 55% of Americans hold what is known to be a high view of scripture, which deems the Bible without error. That's pretty surprising to me. Those numbers were higher than I thought they were going to be. But when you look at how many Americans read the Bible, that number drops a little bit to uh, 34% of Americans who read the Bible once a week or more. And you might say, that's still pretty good. A third of Americans are reading their Bible once a week. Uh, first off, when people take surveys, do they always tell the truth? That's one part of it. But um, the second bit of that is to keep in mind that the results also showed that 58%, so more than those who would say, this is the Bible, this is God's word, it is everything I need for life. 58% of people uh, said that they read the Bible less than four times a year. And if you take out the crowd who comes to Christmas and Easter and Mother's Day, and then they read their Bible in that moment of desperation once a year, then that number jumps even more to there's 30% of Americans that say that they never read the Bible. A third of Americans who never read it. And maybe you fall somewhere in that category. Even someone who believes in this book is the Bible, but quite honestly, you just don't read it that much or you don't fully believe what it claims to be. And so I would just uh, encourage you that it's one thing to say that we believe that this is God's word, but it's another thing to read it to engage with it. And it's one thing to read this book and it's another thing to listen to what it says and to live it, to let it inform the way that we live. It's one thing to have a Bible or to even know the Bible. And it's another thing to delight in it. Do we delight in God's word? Um, you know, I love TV and, and movies. And, um, and so uh, my wife, Sam and I, a lot of times I'm trying to uh, see what movies and TV that I like that she'd be willing to watch. Cause that like niche is pretty small. So, uh, so I always like, I'm keeping a list of like, maybe Sam would be interested in watching this. Maybe this isn't too scary. Maybe this isn't too, uh, you know, weird, whatever. Maybe this isn't too artsy. And, um, and so there'll, there'll come a time where she's like, oh, you want to watch a show? You want to turn something on? It's like, yeah, great. Let's go to the list. What, let's throw up a trailer. Would you watch this? Oh yeah, yeah I'll watch that. So we throw it on and, and we're listening and watching. And it's, uh, you know, usually something that I've already seen before. And so I'm excited about it. You know, it gets to a part where it's like, that really good part. And I turn over and be like, yo, is she loving this? And she's on her phone, like not paying attention at all. And I'm like, did, did you see what happened? Did you hear that? We're watching this show. It's season three with the season finale, this big twist. Did you see it? Oh yeah, I was listening. What happened? Um, actually, I, I don't know. I wasn't listening. <laughs> and then we rewind and watch again or you know, I'm frustrated. I'm just like, we're turning this off. You don't deserve this wonderful piece of art and entertainment. <laughs> By the way, that goes both ways. And I'm probably more on the other end of like, are you listening? So, but that's another story. Um, but that would be my question for you this morning. Are you listening? This is our big idea as we jump into Psalm 19. God's word has spoken. Are you listening? Are you listening? 
Are you paying attention? Are you delighting? Are you getting it? Are you understanding it? Are you receiving it? And I hope that today that that would be true for us. So in order to lay a foundation of the importance and transformational power of Scripture, let's turn to Psalm 19. Psalm 19 is a wonderful passage of Scripture. Uh, C.S. Lewis actually said it was his, his favorite psalm. Uh, love that. It's one of the most extensive teachings about Scripture within Scripture. The only one that's more extensive is Psalm 119. And, you know, I thought about preaching that for a minute, but I thought hundred and whatever verses it is might be a little bit too much for us to go through unless you guys think that's okay. Do do you have all day just to sit here and listen? No? Okay, so we'll go to Psalm 19 instead. So read with me in Psalm 19, verse one. Let's let God's word tell us about God's word. It says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them, he set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. There is nothing hidden from its heat. What we see in these first six verses, the first thing we see in Psalm 19 is that creation is the echo of God's word. We're not at the scriptures yet. The psalmist, David, who wrote this, starts out talking about creation. And in these opening verses, there are three things that creation tells us. When I listen to creation, it tells me first that I can know there is a God. I can know there's a God. We see that clearly in these first few verses. Verse one, that God is a God of power. The heavens declare his glory. We can see that there's a God of power. We can see in verse two, that it reveals who he is. God is the creator. We see his handiwork proclaimed. Verses five and six, uh, with the example of the sun, we see that God is a God of order in the way that he put creation in motion. Put plainly, creation speaks of the creator, right? It's difficult to look at nature and not believe that there's a God. Seeing the beauty the glory, the power, the order of creation is difficult, right? Yeah, there's a picture on the screen. You know, as we come to the tail end of the summer, I felt like we had like a week or two week stretch where the sunsets were just insane. Wasn't it amazing? And, um, and, and few things are more beautiful in creation than a nice sunset. It's like God's painting, right? A song that we sing here at our church says that every painted sky, a canvas of his grace. And it's difficult to look at creation and not believe that there's a God. I just don't know how you get there. But I can remember uh, this specific night, uh, Sam and I were driving home. We were out to dinner. And as we were coming home, uh, we live along uh, the Grand River in Spring Lake. And so we were driving on Leonard Road. And uh, Sam, you know, was head out the window trying to take this picture and some videos and stuff. And as we're coming along the Grand River, just right on the shoulder, on the lip of the river, there's like a dozen cars that are parked, just wanting to capture this beautiful sunset. And then we pull into our neighborhood and literally uh, some of our neighbors... (laughs) They're actually sitting here. We're sprinting down the sidewalk being like, we got to get this sunset. And I don't blame you guys. It's beautiful. Very beautiful sunset. It is difficult to look at nature and not believe that there's a God. Romans 1, in fact, tells us that, that through creation, we should know the creator. Romans 1.19 says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. 
For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. When we listen to creation, it tells us that there is a God. The second thing creation tells us is that there must be a way and truth about life. Creation doesn't just speak of a creator, but the way in which it functions speaks to a purpose of life, a way of life, an order of existence, that we can look to creation and and see that there is a way and a truth about life. Creation is constantly preaching a message without words. And we see that here in Psalm 19. It uses language that creation declares, creation proclaims, creation reveals. That through creation, we can see that. It uses the example given as the sun, that the way the sun operates, it, it functions with purpose. It has a purpose to light the earth. It functions with joy, that the, the sunrise sprints into purpose, that it functions uh, with limitations of the created order, that the sun uh, operates within its limitations and what it's designed to do. And um, this isn't just the sun. In, in Job 12, really cool verses where it talks about other creatures in creation that speak to a purpose and order in life that originates with God. Job 12, verse 7 says, But ask the beasts, and they will teach you, the birds of the heavens, and they will tell you, or the bushes of the earth, and they will teach you, and the fish of the sea will declare to you. Who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? In his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. That creation speaks to the creator, speaks to a way and an order of life. And this isn't just sunsets and puppies that show us that there's a purpose in life, but it's also in the lives of Christians. And I think of there's a young couple in the life of our church who over the last few years has experienced really radical transformation as a result of the gospel, that they came in going into soul care with crisis in their marriage. And as they begin to take steps uh, believing the gospel and, and uh, stepping into how God called them to be as husband and wife, that they've begun to see growth and transformation and change in so much now that they have coworkers and friends who've known them for years who are coming to them asking like, what did you do? What, what, what are you doing now? Because like you've changed so much. You're such a better person. You live with such a purpose and a joy and a, and a hope. And their lives operate in a way that they were created for, that God designed, and it's an echo of God's word. And I've also had many people come to me and say, there's just, there's just something about the worship at harvest that is different and powerful and, and, and moving. And even non-Christians who've come into this room and have said like, I feel something. There's something here. There's something moving. There's something supernatural. I see that the people in the room, you on stage in the congregation are fired up and singing passionately. Like, what is that about? And I tell them, well, that's the Holy Spirit. God's presence is in this place as we come to worship him. That ultimately we as a church, when we worship God and we echo the word of God that leads people to say there must be a God and there must be a purpose in life. Creation tells us that. The third thing creation tells us is that I can't interpret God's word, right? Creation is an echo of God's word. That through it, we can know that there is a God And there seems to be in a way and a true about life, but it's ultimately not God's word. And through creation alone, we are unable to hear and comprehend and interpret God's word through creation alone. 
This idea that I've been talking around in this point is a theological concept called general revelation. That in creation, we can know enough about God to know that there's a God, but we can't know enough about God to know who that God is and to have a relationship with him. The creation is just an echo. It's artwork that points back. It's like interacting with a piece of art, a, uh, whether it's music or a painting or a photo or a film that we can try to understand and interpret the piece of art. But ultimately, unless we know who the artist is or we hear directly from them telling us what it means, it's difficult for us to make sense of its meaning or to have certainty of what it is, what it means and who it was made by. Does anyone in the room like just, you know, you, like you think about art and you look at it and you're like, what does this even mean? Like, it's just a squiggle on a piece of paper. Like, this is art? And um, this really makes me think of a street artist named Banksy. Banksy is uh, one of the most uh, famous and popular artists of this moment in time. And he's famous for his street art, his graffiti in major cities where he goes around in their social commentary about things. And and Banksy's uh, pieces of art sell for insane amount of monies. And and even he has uh, these different galleries and things uh, where you can go and see it. And even right now, uh, just in Chicago, I think it's in different cities now, but there was a like Life of Banksy exhibit. And one of my brothers went to it and he's like, man, it was not worth what it cost. And it was just pieces of art. It didn't say anything about his life. Because that's the thing about Banksy. That's why he's so famous and popular because no one knows who he is. There's an anonymity to his identity. There's an ambiguity and room for interpretation of Zart. Right? That people speculate, like this means this and this is what it says. But because Banksy is anonymous and largely stays off the record and doesn't speak to the meaning of his art, it's all just speculation. They can't know with certainty the meaning or the artist himself. And I know that there are people here today that honestly, you would fall in this category. You've heard the echo of God's word. You've been convinced that there must be a God who made this all. That there's something in you that says there must be a meaning and a purpose in life. But even right now, you're left searching for what that is you don't know. And without an interpretation through creation alone, you can't make sense of it. And I would just invite you, if that's you, that you wouldn't stay in that place today, but that you would come to receive and see and know who God is in his word. Because the Bible says that the end result of this sort of agnosticism is, is not so great, honestly. I read Romans 1, 19 and 20 earlier, but I left out the last sentence. You know, it says that what can be known about God is plain to them. God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes have been clearly perceived in the things that have been made. And it says, so they are without excuse. The creation tells us we don't know enough about God to know him personally, but we know enough about God to be without excuse, to be condemned and judged in eternity for your rejection of God. I know that's heavy. I know that sounds harsh, but I don't want you to remain in that place today. Would you come and listen to the word of God and its claims? And so the echo of God's word through creation, let it lead you to the word of God itself. So let's continue in Psalm 19, verse seven. Verse seven says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous all together. And the second thing we see here is that when uh, scripture, scripture is the revelation of God's word. 
The creation is the echo of God's word, the general revelation, the unspoken, incomplete reveal of the word of God. And verses seven through nine shows us that scripture is the special revelation, the spoken, complete reveal of God's word. And so when we listen to it, it tells us things as well, similar to creation. When I listen to scripture, it tells me first that I can know about God. Not just that I can know that there is a God, but I can know about that God. It tells us that I can know about who he is. God is mentioned uh, just once in the first six verses. And the word that's there for him is the Hebrew word Elohim, which is a, a general and generic title that means God. It's not specific to uh, the Trinitarian God, but in verses seven through nine, uh, six times it says the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. And the Hebrew word that's there is the word Yahweh. It's the personal name of God. That's an invitation and to know that name that was revealed to Moses originally in the burning bush, meaning I am that I am. That the switching of the titles of the name is an invitation from the formal to the personal to come and to know. You know, it makes me think of, I can remember growing up, growing up, I was a pastor's kid. And uh, so that's why I tell my kid, when you're walking into church, say, hey to everyone. Cause I got the same, same like shtick, like even, you know, te teach us how to answer the phone. Like make sure you do all that stuff right. Be a great pastor's kid and whatnot. And so one of those things was that when you were talking to adults, you had to make sure that you address them with the proper title, right? Mr. and Mrs. Johnson. Hello, Mr. and Mrs. Johnson. How's it going? And then, you know, how would you function and operate or respond if you got the response as a kid where they were like, actually, you can call me Tom. My father's Mr. Johnson. You're like, can I actually call him Tom? Am I allowed to do that? I think I have to be a certain age where I'm able to move from Mr. to Tom. I'm just going to stay with Mr., okay? And um, that's what God's doing here. His invitation from the formal to the personal, come to know who I am. And listening to scripture, it tells me I can know about uh, who God is, but it also tells us that we can know about what he says. That when scripture is referred here with various titles, we'll get into in a second, but each time it's followed by of the Lord. And really simply scripture is and claims to be the authoritative, inerrant word of God spoken through the Holy Spirit to the writers of the canon of scripture that this is the word of God and that's what it claims to be, to belong to him, to come in and know who I am and what I say from the Lord. The second thing scripture tells us is this, that when I listen to scripture, it tells me this is the way and the truth about life. This is the way, this is the purpose, this is the meaning, this is the way to go about it. And here we see there are six titles for scripture. There are six characteristics of the truth of scripture and then there are six benefits of the way of scripture. Scripture says, this is the way of life. This is the absolute truth of the world. That's an unpopular thing to say these days, isn't it? That this is absolute truth. That this message pushes up against the backdrop of a, cultural, uh, a culture where certainty is impossible and truth is subjective. You know, we lived in a time that was described as post-modernity and now what many would describe as uh, secular, post-Christian, cultural, and world. Truth has been relegated to personal freedom and individual feelings and preferences. Have you, had, have you heard people using this phrase more? My truth is, what's that about? 
that our truth, I can, I can choose what is true for me, that it's relegated to my feelings and preferences and what I want to be true. You see, because my truth is that the White Sox are gonna win the World Series. You know, last time when I preached here at this campus, I brought Carolyn up and shamed her about being a Cubs fan and said, the White Sox are gonna win the World Series. And, and that's still my truth, even though I'm gonna go to Chicago this afternoon and probably see them be kicked out of the first round of the playoffs with my brothers. But my truth is that they're gonna win the World Series. So I'm just, I'm gonna hold on to that. Did I offend or poke anyone? That's, that's God's word. This is the truth. It's not my truth. Truth has been relegated to individuals' interpretation. You know, I've, I've done my own research on Facebook. I'm sorry if you have more than one degree because someone just said Facebook is smarter than you at research. So there's not a lot of truth in the Facebook feed. It's not there. And I don't say that just to upset you or offend you or to call you out or to make you feel ashamed about that, but to say that this is the present moment that we live in where there's a sense where truth is subjective and individual and personalized and it's based on my feelings and my intellect and understanding. Oh man, that is, we're, we're going bad places when we are the assessors of truth, right? Where truth is at right now, it's totally working out and everyone's happy and civilization is in a great place, right? Amen. Like, why are we doing a series on Christian worldview? Everything's awesome. That was a joke. I was being sarcastic. Trying to lighten it up a little bit. Where truth is subjective, see, where truth is subjective and muddied and decided by the individual, it leads away from actual truth. And it leads away from the way of life that scripture calls us to. And so really quickly, I want to break down the six titles, six characteristics of truth, and six results of the way of the law. What scripture says, this is the truth. This is the way of life. So there's a chart on the screen. The first title we see in those verses is the law. God's word is the law. The truth about it is that it's perfect, meaning that it is flawless, and I could spend a lot of time really diving into, again, stats and charts and reasons why this book is trustworthy. And quite honestly, I'm not going to spend a lot of time there and maybe I should spend more time, but um, we're just going to let God's word say what it is. And the way as a result of that is that the perfect law revives the soul. This is the idea that scripture has the power to show us who we are, to show us who we were made to be. And a few weeks ago, we established, right, that we are uh, sinners. We are born into a fallen, sinful state. And so we are born with souls that are in need of revival, restoration, realignment to be shown who we were designed to be. The second title we see here is a testimony. This is the idea of divine witness, that God's word is as trustworthy and on the level of an eyewitness account. That's what it is. There's actually a verse where uh, the apostle Peter, he says that he's like, I saw Jesus transfigure and it was incredible. And it really moved my heart to believe in God and who he is. But scripture is as trustworthy as my eyewitness account of Jesus transfiguring. Pretty amazing statement. It's a divine witness. And the truth about it is that it is sure. We can trust it. The way is that it makes wise the simple. Wisdom, I've heard it defined best this way, is knowledge applied. 
And as I think about that in my life, usually wisdom is associated with age, right? I can look back, uh, I'm 28. I can look back at who I was at 18. Thank God for the internet, for Facebook on this day to remind myself of my 18-year-old self and the foolish things that I said and the hideous things that I wore and all the, all the stuff that's on there, the memories to remind me of the fool that I was. I could look back on who I was 10 years ago and be like, oh my gosh, that guy was a fool. I've, I've grown so much. Here's the thing though, I think at 38, I'm gonna be looking at 28-year-old me and be saying the same exact thing. And I think at 48, I'll be saying the same thing about 38 me and I kind of think that's how it is. And so the cool thing here is that wisdom generally comes with age, but what we see here is that uh, the simple here, he brings wise, uh, wisdom to the simple. It's this idea of naivety, naive, limited understanding, generally associated with young people. And so what God is saying is that no matter what age you are, no matter what intellect you are, no matter what stage of life you're in, wisdom is available for you. A knowledge of how to live life. The next title is uh, the precepts. And the truth about the precepts, it says it is right. This is an idea of a, a straight edge that God's word is the thing by which other things are measured. It is the measurement of everything. And the way, as a result of that, it says it rejoices the heart. Pretty cool that the the rules, the restrictions, the standard of life leads to joy. The fifth uh, title here, it says the commandment. The truth about the commandment is that it is pure which means that it is clear and understandable. It's approachable. We can make sense of it. And I think this is maybe a word for someone right now that you view God's word as, you know, I'm, I'm not smart enough to understand it. Or I haven't been a Christian long enough or whatever. And uh, that's just absolutely not true. God's word is clear and approachable and applicable for you. It's understandable. And the way that it leads to is it enlightens the eyes that the clarity and the understanding of scripture leads to this lightness about you, right? In a world that is dark and heavy and weighed down and more often that people would be uh, depressed and anxious with darkened eye circles that the word of God comes to enlighten the eyes and bring a lightness about us. The next title we see here is The Fear. The fear of the Lord. You know, a lot of times when we think about fear, we think that fear is a bad thing. But you've probably heard it before, but there's a sense of a healthy fear of the Lord, right? There's such thing as healthy fear. If the stove is on, I'm not going to put my hand in the flame. That's something you hope that your kid learns at a very young age and not by experience. And the truth about the fear of the Lord is that it is clean. It is without blemish. And the way about it is that it endures forever. I love this. Isaiah 48, what a great verse that says, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. The last title here, the title is the rules. The truth is that it's, it's true. Once again, hitting very common things, but trying to say, this is the word of the Lord. This is the standard of life. This is the truth. We can trust it. And the way, last thing it says, it is righteous all together. I love that word all together. What that's trying to say there is that every word of scripture is equally true and universally relevant, that it has everything I need and it is the source of absolute truth. It is everything I need here in this book to understand life, to know the way of life, to do what I'm designed to do. It is a lot like a piece of Ikea furniture. Love Ikea furniture for two reasons. Well, three, it's cheap, it's pretty cool, 
and it's very easy to put together. And that's very important for me. In fact, most things you get from Ikea don't require tools outside of what is in the box. Fantastic, because I don't own many tools. And this is why we, I love it. I love Ikea furniture and God's word is truly just like that. That has everything that we need right there to accomplish what we're called to do. Um, it'd be nearly impossible to preach a message on the Bible and not quote 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, which says that very thing, that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That scripture, when we listen to it, tells us this is the way and the truth about life. And the next few verses show us the outcome of the person who lives by this truth, who lives in the way that God's word calls us to. Read with me in verse 10. It says, More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. The psalmist has said time and time again, as God's word is perfect. It's the source of truth. It tells me the way of life, which leads me to delight in God's word, to value it. Man, if this is the way to life and to understanding, this is a valuable piece of material. That it leads to delight in God's word. It leads to making the right decisions, living the right way in life, and ultimately getting a great reward. That is eternal life with God. That reward waits. But all of a sudden you see it turns in verse 12. David turns and says, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from the presumptuous sins. Errors, faults, presumptuous sins or deliberate sins. The listening to scripture tells me about God and the truth and the way of life. But ultimately we see here that scripture tells me I can't fulfill God's word. I can't do it. God's word is perfect and amazing and it tells me about God. It tells me my purpose in life, but I can't do it. I fall short. The idea that you and me could perfectly follow and live this book in our sinful, fallen human state is a lot like a, a friend of mine I have who made a, a deal with his wife. He really wanted to get a tattoo and his wife was like, all right, here's the deal. You can get a tattoo when you have a six pack. And here we are two years later, and there is no six-pack. What a deal. It was never going to happen. It was impossible. You don't even know who, need to know who it was to know that a six-pack was impossible. You know how hard it is to get a six-pack? If you got a six-pack, tell me how you got it. And I can tell my friends, so then he can get a tattoo. And uh, that'd be good for him. We can't fulfill God's law. We can't live God's truth. We can't live his way of life. Creation tells us, Creation tells us enough about God that we are without excuse. We reject God. We avoid knowing him. The law tells us, though, that our, in our inability to fulfill God's word, we're condemned. Galatians 3.10 tells us of this. It says, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Maybe this is you. You listen to God's word. Right now you're listening to God's word. You know about God. You know and believe that this is a source of absolute truth, that this is the way of life. But ultimately, you can't do it. Can't do what it says to do. Can't live it. And you fail and you're condemned and you know it. 
As we read in verse uh, 13, this really sounds like it flows from the heart that knows that. And maybe this is you. This is something that you've thought or said or written in a journal. So relatable when David says, let them, my sins, not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Lord, please, I don't want to sin. (laughs) Make me not sin. Just make me a better person. I want to be perfect. I want to be innocent. Let the things that I say and do and think in the depths of my heart and soul be right by your word, your way, your truth. It's impossible. How, David? How are you going to experience that to be true for you? To be sinless and blameless and perfect and whole. Like, David, this is your six-pack deal with God. It's just, it's not going to happen. God's word tells us that we cannot fulfill it. We can't live it. And as a result, we're bound to be judged in eternity by God for our sin, longing to be better than we are. But what God's word ultimately points us to, to see that where we cannot ever fulfill this book, we can't live it. We can't ever fulfill the word of God, that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's word. What a great truth that Jesus is the message, the center, the fulfillment, God's word itself. God make me blameless and right and forgiven, but how? Verse 14 tells us how, what a beautiful verse. Oh, Yahweh, my rock and my redeemer. That's Jesus. It is Jesus who fulfills the law. And when we listen to Jesus, he tells us a few uh, things as well. When I listen to Jesus, he tells me first that I can know God, that I can't just know that there is a God. I don't just know about God, but I know God personally and can have a relationship with him. We have that through Jesus that Jesus is God. Jesus is the creator. Even when it talks about creation at the beginning of Psalm 19, that Jesus was present and a part of creation, that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's word. Luke 24, 44 says this, Jesus said this, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He's the fulfillment of God's word. Jesus is not just the fulfillment of God's word, but do you know this, that God's word says that he is the word of God. John 1, verse 1 says that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Jump to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the word of God made flesh that we can know God personally because the second thing Jesus tells us is that he is the way and the truth and the life. John 14, six, he said that. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. He is the way. When we cannot live and fulfill this way, when we can't make a way for ourselves, he makes a way. He's the truth in a world, in a culture that is a sea of subjectivity, Jesus Christ is the truth. That he is the life. That Jesus Christ lived the perfect life that you and I could not. Me and you, we can't fulfill the law. We can't live it. And so we are condemned until Christ came and lived the perfect life on our behalf. Then he died the death that we were meant to die. The death that was ultimately because we couldn't live this book, he died it. And then he rose again three days later. And in his resurrection life, we can share in it and live forever. 
that we don't need to die and face condemnation for our inability to live by this book. Hear that, hear that. You can't live this book. You may have heard the echo of God's word. Do not leave this room condemned, but receive the way and the truth and the life that is found in the life, death and resurrection of Christ. Just as Galatians 3 says, I read verse 10, but 11 continues to tell us the good news. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law for the righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And then jumping ahead to verse 24, it says, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Other translations say it this way. Therefore, the law has become a tutor to lead us to Christ. That God's word exists to lead us to Jesus, to see him the fulfillment of the word of God, that he is God. He's the way, the truth, and the life to and through God. And last thing, this, that when I listen to Jesus and his fulfillment of God's word, he tells me that I can delight in God's word. That by faith in Jesus, that him, the fulfillment of God's word, God himself, the way, the truth, and the life, that we can delight in this book. That the benefits, Psalm 19, when it talks about the wisdom and life and joy, that that is ours in Christ. So I want to close uh, just looking to Jeremiah 23, 29. Another verse that talks about the Bible that says this, Is not my word like fire, declared the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? And the truth about this book, the truth about Scripture is that apart from scripture, through creation alone, that the law, the word of God, is a hellfire that will be delivered to us, that is our destination. That whether or not you have heard the word of God or engaged with it, that there's enough in creation for the word of God to be waiting for you after this life and eternity, for it to be a fire, a hellfire, to be the judgment and the payment for your sins. Maybe you feel that today, that God's word is like a fire. It is something that is scary and fearful and quite honestly, like the stovetop, something I'm avoiding. So in this life, whether that's true or not, I'm just gonna ignore that fact and live my life like it's not true and stay in the place of just listening to the echo of God's word through creation. Don't stay there today. God's word does not need to remain a fire that is waiting for you. It's necessary that it starts to be that, but only to lead you to the next thing. And in that verse, we see the second thing that apart from Christ, the scriptures, the word of God is like a hammer that will destroy you. And maybe you live in that place, that the scripture, that God's word is a hammer that daily, every time you open it, every time you come to church, every time you think about opening that book on Tuesday morning, it's like, no, no, no I'm, not, I'm not opening that book because it's gonna bang me over the head. It's gonna show me that I fall short. It's gonna show me that I can't do it. It's gonna break me to pieces. And that cursed be everyone who does not fulfill every word of the law. But thanks be to God, right? Because only in Jesus does the word of God become a honeycomb. 
I didn't even know they sold this at Meyer. It's like a real honeycomb. And talk about creation being beautiful and showing God. Just look at the honeycomb and be like, look at that design. That's amazing. There must be a God. It smells great. I'm going to leave it in there because there's nothing I hate more than like the stickiness of honey. But the honeycomb is associated with sweetness and delight. And even the idea that it is so sweet that you, you can only just have like a taste, only just a little like in a cup of tea or on something else because it is, is so sweet and it will sustain us throughout all its life. And this is available for you today. Is your view of this book one of like, I feel obligated to read it. It just tells me that I'm bad at life. I don't like what it says, I'm gonna avoid it. Condemnation is there, but it does not have to be your result. That does not have to be your view of God's word. Instead, would it be one of delight? And so my question for you as we close is, do you delight in this book? Will you find delight in this book? Again, the big idea, God's word is spoken. Are you listening? Don't listen to the echo of God's word and ignore it, but be drawn in to hear the scriptures. And don't just stay at the scriptures and ignore the truth of it, the way of it, and our inability to fulfill it. But let the scriptures, the word of God, every time when we open it at church, when you open it at home, when you study it in small group, lead you to Jesus. So that this word is not one of condemnation, but it is one of delights and sustenance and life and joy and all that we need in this life that is available for us. And so as we close the sermon, I just wanna end in a little bit of a different way. I wanna invite you to stand, hold on to your Bible. You may have already packed it out. So if you packed your Bible, take it out, stand up and hold your Bible up. And I just wanna end as our, our prayer, as our way to want to receive the delight that is found in God's word, to declare truths about God's word from it together. So if you would hold your Bible up and then just repeat after me, this will be on the screen. This is my Bible. I am who it says I am. I can do what it says I can do. I'm going where it says I will go. God's word is milk for my soul. God's word is seed for my faith. God's word is light for my path. God's word is power for my victory. God's word is freedom for my life. When I read God's word, it brings me joy. When I study God's word, it keeps me from shame. When I memorize God's word, it purifies my heart. Come on, last slide, let's really say this out loud. When I quote God's word, it defeats my enemies. When I meditate on God's word, it brings me success. When I abide in God's word, it gives me confidence. I am a Bible-believing follower of Jesus Christ. Amen.